0: Again, right, let's begin by going to open prayer. Father, we're grateful yet again to be gathered together as the people of God, as your church, the assembly of Christ called out of darkness into the light of the kingdom, the ones who are called out, gathered together to worship the God who has saved us and redeemed us by His grace, and we are amazed as we think about your glory, as we <coughs> think about all that You are, all that You have done, and now we come to worship the King. That's what we want to do this morning. We want to worship You in the ways that You have appointed by the means by which You have ordained for us through prayer and the hearing of Scripture and fellowship and the Lord's Supper and all of these glorious realities that You've given to us as a church. And so we pray that as we worship this morning, You would be with us, that You would hear us, that You would draw near to us, and that Your Word would do its work in our hearts so that we might be transformed for the glory of our Savior. Amen. All right, we now come this morning in our continuous study of sanctification and the spiritual disciplines to part 8 of evangelism, and this is going to be the final uh, part on evangelism. Um, I told you this evangelism study comes to you in two primary lessons, I said. Uh, The first one was the basics of evangelism the basics of evangelism, the who, what, when, where, why, how. Uh, We talked about those basic things of evangelism is proclaiming the gospel, every Christian's called to do it, we're called to do it all the time, everywhere, and so on. And then in part two, which uh, we spent, I think, six weeks working our way through that, it was an outline for evangelism, uh, the basic elements of a gospel message. I kind of gave you a five-point outline uh, of things to say when you communicate the gospel. And, of course, that outline was God, man, Christ, response, promises, and warnings. But this morning, unfortunately, Caitlin has no notes yet, so she can't answer questions. But uh, we come to Part 8, and what I want to do this morning, essentially, is quickly review a little bit of what we talked about, then I want to give you some practical things to take away from this, and kind of just bring it down to earth, and uh, kind of show you how you can put this into practice and share the gospel, okay? Uh, So first of all, let's just reviewing that outline. The Gospel begins with God. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. God's standard is perfection. And so therefore, God cannot overlook sin or leave the guilty unpunished, right? Man is a sinner. He's a sinner by nature. He's a sinner by choice. He's a sinner through and through. Man has broken the law of God. His heart is wicked. His heart is corrupt. He has no ability in himself to change himself or save himself. And so left to his own devices, man is condemned and hopeless. Then we talked about Christ, the person of Christ. We considered that Christ has two distinct natures. What are those natures? You thought I was going to do all the talking as well. Fully God, fully man. Fully God, fully man. What were we going to say? Nothing. She's the of your daughters. Fully God, fully man. Deity humanity. That's actually what we'll be talking about in the sermon as well. So, that's who Jesus is. He's the God-man, a sufficient Savior. We talked about what He has done to accomplish our salvation. And uh, what, what were the things that He did to accomplish the salvation of His people? Lived
1: a perfect
0: life. Lived a perfect life. And that perfect life satisfied what? The law. The law. The law. But then He did what? After He lived a perfect life. He died. Died. And that satisfied the wrath of God, right? That appeased divine justice. And then He rose, rose from the dead, ascended on high, intercedes for us, and is coming again in judgment, right? So Jesus' life satisfies the moral demands of the law of God. God demands perfection. Jesus wrought that perfection out for us and gives it to us, right? There is a good book if you want to help your young children learn this, and if you want to actually have a good illustration for yourself. A uh, book by R.C. Sproul called The uh, Priest in the Dirty Clothes. Really good illustration. Essentially, uh, the picture is the sinner has got filthy garments on. He can't come into the presence of the king. So the prince, the son of the king, takes off his clean garments and exchanges his clean garments for the filthy garments of the sinner so that we now can come into the presence of God. Looks <coughs> like so we might have some visitors. Hey, how are you, boy? Yes, come on in. And so that's what Jesus accomplished for our salvation. He died, he rose again, he ascended to heaven. And then we talked about man's response. What is it that we have to do in response to the gospel to be saved? Invite Jesus into our life? No. No. Accept Christ, quote unquote. No. What have we got to do to be saved? Repent and believe, Repent and believe right? You keep taking all of our answers. So you have to repent and believe, right? The word repent, metanoia, an afterthought, a change of mind that results in a change of action. Uh, It involves a change of mind about God, right? We go from hating God, uh, despising God, suppressing the truth about God, to embracing the truth of who He is as revealed in the Scripture. Um, It's a change of mind about ourselves. We admit and agree that we are sinful, undeserving, unworthy, and not good. And then it's a change of mind about our sin. We go from loving sin to hating it and resolve to turn away from it, right? And then faith is trusting in Christ, not yourself. And then we talked about the promises of the Gospel. What are some of the promises that the Gospel makes to us? If you repent and believe in Christ, what are some of the promises that you receive as a Christian? Caitlin knows the answer. Go to
1: heaven.
0: Go to heaven, so you have the hope of eternal life, the gift of eternal glory, okay? What else? Is that all? You know, and that's the one we think of, right? You become a Christian to go to heaven, but is there more? Caitlin seems to think there's a lot more. What are some of the other promises the gospel makes to us? Regeneration, so we receive a new what? New heart. new heart. God takes away the heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh, so that we now hate sin and love God, right? What What are some of the other promises? Sanctification. Sanctification. God gives us a new. Holiness or a new life. We were once dominated by sin. As a believer, we have the Spirit of God in us. Holy affections granted to us so that we can grow in obedience to the Word of God. Justification, Justification, right? What is that? God declaring us righteous, innocent. right? We receive a new verdict before the judge. What else? Reconciliation. Reconciliation, right? Before conversion, we are the what? The enemies of God. After conversion, we become the friends of God, right? We have a new relationship with God. What else? Adoption. Before conversion, who is our father? The devil, right? Jesus says, you're of your father the devil. If God were your father, you'd believe in me, John 8, right? So, at conversion, we are adopted into the family of God, and God becomes our father, right? Then there's what else? Preservation. Preservation, right? God promises to preserve the souls of His godly. Ones. God keeps us and gives us a new hope, right? And then there's the final one. Glorification. Glorification. What is that? God gives us a new what? Body. New body, in a new heaven, and a new earth, right? That's the promise. So these are the promises that we offer to people. That if you come to Christ, all of your sins will be forgiven. You'll be made right with God, become the friend of God, a child of God, and you'll escape the wrath of God. But that's not where it ends, is it? Can we just stop with promises? No, we have to move on to what? Gospel warning. And there's a warning to two categories of people, two groups of people. There's a warning to the non-believer, the one who rejects the gospel outrightly. And what's the warning to the unbeliever? If you reject Christ, what happens? going to die in your sin and go where? Going to go to hell. And we don't say that because we delight in people being damned. We say that because we love people and we want to tell them the truth. Right? Paul says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? The truth is if you reject the only sacrifice for sin, there's no hope for you. There's only a fearful expectation of judgment. So Christ and Christ alone. And then finally, there's a warning to who? Not only the non-believer. The professing believer. There's even a warning to those who profess to be in Christ. What is that warning? Is everyone who claims to be a Christian really a Christian? No. Jesus says, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'll tell them, Depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness, right? So the warning to the professing believer is that if you really are a Christian, your life will be changed. And if it's not changed by the grace of God, you're not a believer. You're a false convert. Okay? So we need to warn people. Alright, so that's the gospel. That's the outline we've spent the last six weeks or so digging into in depth. Now this morning what I want to do is I want to give you some practical things to take away from this. And then next week we'll move on to the topic of discipleship. Uh, so first of all, what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about the right method. The right method. When we proclaim the gospel, we need to use a biblical method. And I think the most biblical method is what I'm calling the law and gospel method. Law and gospel. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul writes a very fiery letter to the churches of Galatia. Uh, These churches had defected from the gospel. And Paul warns them that uh, a defection from the true gospel of salvation by faith alone renders you anathema, damned. Uh, The gospel does not tell us that we're made right with God by law, it does not tell us that we're made right with God by ceremonialism or ritualism or legalism, but we're made right with God by faith alone in Christ alone. So then you get to chapter 3 and the question is, well, what's the purpose of the law then? If the law was not given to the people of God to save them, then why did God give the law? And there are several reasons, but what do you think are some of the reasons that God gave us the law? To see the need, to see the need for what? Salvation. Salvation, right? That's the main one here. Look at Galatians 3. Galatians 3, go to verse, go to verse 19. Why the law then? Why the law? We're saved by faith, not by law. No one has ever in any age or dispensation or covenant ever been saved by the law. Then why the law? Verse 19, It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. It was added because of transgressions, maybe to restrain sin, but more than anything to expose sin. To expose sin. Then go to verse 24. Galatians 3, verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. According to this verse, what is it that leads us to Christ? The law. The law. The law. If we want people to be led to Christ, what do we need to give them? The law. Right? That word tutor, there, interesting word, is the word padegagas, and it would refer to. Uh, Basically, the person who would have uh, the steward in the home who would care for the young children. It would be their teacher, their instructor, their guardian while the parents were away, and it would instruct the children. So, the law, Paul says, is like the potigagas. It's like the tutor that takes us under uh, its, its authority and teaches us and instructs us so that we will be led and driven to believe in Christ that we might be saved. The law shows us that we cannot save ourselves that we are not good enough, and that we desperately need a Savior who can take away our sin. That's what the law does. Go to Romans now, to the book of Romans, a few pages to the left. Go to chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And I want to look at uh, verse 7. Romans 7, verse 7. Apostle Paul, now defending the law. Because you, you know, we're a people of extremes, aren't we? The pendulum just swings in the opposite direction. So you say, we're not saved by the law, so we don't even need the law. The law is bad. Paul says no. So having written several chapters in which he explains that justifications by faith alone apart from the law, he then defends the law and says the law is good. Here's why. Verse 7, here's one of the reasons. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. How do we come to know what sin is? The law. Because what is sin? Violation of the law. First John 3.4 Sin is lawlessness. The breaking of the law of God. So the law shows you your sin. Then he adds, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. So his conclusion in verse 12, Romans 7 verse 12, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is good for several reasons, but one of which is that it reveals sin and drives us to the Savior. I go to chapter 3 now, Romans 3. You know, there's a lot of talk in the evangelical world when it comes to methods of evangelism. And one method that you've no doubt heard of is that of the Roman's road. Has everybody heard of that? The Roman's road? Uh, The problem is most people who utilize that method really miss it. Because there's very little talk about sin, maybe just a quick verse, very little talk about the law of God, very little talk about the wrath of God, and yet if you read the first three chapters of Romans... Those chapters are dominated by those themes sin, the law, judgment, condemnation, etc. And so, if we're going to be biblical and use the real Romans road, then we're going to have to talk a lot about sin. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. "...as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become useless..." This is a picture of the whole human race outside of Christ, naturally. "...all have turned aside, they've all become useless, there is none who does good, no, not one, verse 13, their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving, the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness..." Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a very bad picture, isn't it? One commentator said, uh, when he does evangelism, he'll tell people, You want me to show you your picture? I'll say, Sure. And I'll point to Romans 3. Outside of Christ, this is you. You're condemned. Verse 20 or verse 19. Here's the conclusion of this section on condemnation. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and the whole world might become accountable to God. So the law shuts the sinner's mouth. It ends all excuses. Because when you bring the sinner face to face with the law, it makes it crystal clear that he can't do it. He's not good enough. You can't deny your sin when you look into the mirror of the law. It's like denying that your hair hasn't been brushed after looking in the mirror. You need to go back, right? And so the law then serves as a kind of mirror that gives us a true picture of ourselves. Verse 20, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If someone's going to be saved from sin, they need to realize they have sin. And for them to realize they have sin, what has God given us as a means to show them that? The law. But how often do we see the law used in evangelism within modern evangelicalism? Very rarely. It's all, God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life. You, know, you need to accept Jesus. You need to be fulfilled and happy, and et cetera. Et cetera. The, the life enhancement gospel. But that's not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is you've broken the law, you need a Savior. That needs to be our message to the non-believer. And there is a biblical illustration of this. Do you know who used this method? Who's the master evangelist? Christ. Go to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And I want to look at verse, starting in verse 17, have the story of the rich young ruler here. And notice how Jesus deals with this man. Mark ten verse seventeen. Again, we need to be biblical. We want to emulate our Savior and engage in biblical evangelism. Here's a good example. Verse seventeen: As he was setting out on a journey, that is Jesus, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, "Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" Now here we go. Modern evangelicals, ask Jesus in your heart, invite Christ into your life, fill the card, come up to the front of the pew, to the front of the altar, right. Not Jesus. Look what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So notice what Jesus does. He takes this conversation and He shifts it to two topics. Number one, the identity of Christ, His own identity. right? Because He's saying, look, you're willing to acknowledge I'm good, there's only one who's good, who's eternally, underivatively, intrinsically, perfectly good, and that's who? God. So are you willing to acknowledge that I'm God, Jesus is saying essentially? And then secondly, he's confronting the sinner with a true standard of goodness. The standard of goodness is who? God. And he expresses that standard in his law. So notice how Jesus goes on to use the law. Verse 20. You know the commandments. Have you ever started a gospel conversation like that? Someone runs up to you and says, what do I need to do to be saved? And you say, you know the commandments. We would never say that. How far evangelicalism has strayed from biblical evangelism. But Jesus says, You know the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. What's he quoting here? The Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, right? The Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. Is Jesus insinuating that we can be saved by the law? What's he doing? Proving, we can't keep it. Sh- proving that we can't keep it. Showing us this man needs to realize, first and foremost of all, that he's not good, that he can never be good enough, and that for him to have eternal life, he's got to realize he needs, uh, he needs a savior. He needs to throw away his own record, throw away his own righteousness, and trade it in for the righteousness of another, namely Jesus Christ. Verse 20 He said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Is that true? No. No way. Maybe the letter of the law, maybe externally he was very moral, but then you get to the heart of the law. Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you even look at a woman and lust for her, you already commit adultery with her in your heart. If you're angry enough with your brother to say to him, you fool, you're guilty enough to go to hell, you're already a murderer, First John 3.15. So no man has kept this law. Verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. In other words, he's exposing the man's self-righteousness and his idol. Because verse 22 says that these words, He was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. This man, though he asked and inquired about how to receive eternal life, was not a true candidate for salvation because he had not recognized his sin, was unwilling to confess his sin, unwilling to acknowledge his need for the Savior, and unwilling to submit to the Lordship of Christ and give up everything. He wasn't a qualified candidate. So we need to be sure that the people we engage with understand the real requirements, the real standard. They're sinners, they deserve judgment, Christ demands total surrender by faith, etc., so he's we need to proving, use the law. He's
1: proving here that he broke the first four
0: Exactly. He didn't love God with all his heart, did he? he? Who did he love more than God? What did he love more than God? His possession. His possession. And whose possessions were they? His possession. So ultimately, he loved himself more than God. He was an idolater, wasn't he? Amen. He really exposing sin. All right, so that's the method. Now, let me give you a practical example of how you can use this method, okay? I'm just going to kind of share with you the way I share the gospel with you. So if I'm on the streets at Butternut Street and the gunshots are popping off and tables are flipping, and true story, people are walking by and I give them a gospel track and I ask them, Sir, did you get one of these? And he'll say, yeah, sure. And he'll take the track and I ask him, What do you think, sir, happens, after this, happens to someone after they die? And that's a good question to lead with. And then I'll say something like, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you go to heaven. I'm not sure. I'm an agnostic. I really don't know what happens. And then you can say to him, or actually, let's, let's say he's an atheist. Let's just say he's a staunch atheist. He says, you know what? I actually don't believe God exists at all. There's no evidence for the existence of God. Here's what I would do. I would say, sir, are you sure about that? Well, yeah. Sir, you see that building there? Think it had a builder? Yeah. Buildings don't build themselves. When you see a painting, do you think it had a painter? Yeah. Paintings don't paint themselves. You see a book. Did it have an author? Yes. The book is the evidence for the author. Creation is the evidence of the Creator. Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1, Through the things that have been made, all men know God and are without excuse. Right? You know God. And then I'll say, Sir, this evidence is conclusive. You're made in the image of God. You live in the world that God has made. You have creation all around you. You have your conscience bearing witness. Sir, you are without excuse. At this point, it's our tendency, and we're tempted to think, Man, maybe this guy really doesn't believe me. Maybe I've really got to work hard and prove it. You don't have to. He already knows God. Why spend five hours going through all of the crazy arguments? And they're good arguments. They're conclusive, biblical arguments. But they already know. They already, do you think that that's going to convert the sinner? No. The only thing that's going to convert the sinner is the gospel. Okay? So here's what I would do then I'll say, Sir, creation's the evidence for the Creator. What do you think about that? He'd go, Ah, I don't think so. Of course he doesn't. He interprets the evidence in light of his presuppositions, in light of his lens that he wears, right? And he's wearing the wrong lens. He needs a new heart. So then I would say to him this. I would say, sir, I think I can get to the bottom of your atheism. He'd say, oh, yeah? Well, yes, sir. Do you consider yourself to be a good person? Are you morally upright? And he would say, I think so, yeah. Well, sir, how many lies have you told in your entire life? Ah, I can't count them. Well, what do you call someone who tells lies? A liar. Have you ever stolen something, Mr. Atheist? Well, of course, who hasn't? What do you call someone who steals? And they'll say a stealer. That's when you tell them, no, stealers are in Pittsburgh. You tell them a thief, right? You call them a thief. <laughs> then you say, sir, have you ever used God's name in vain? Oh, my G-O-D, oh, Jesus. You know, stub your toe, you get angry. And in. So instead of using the filth word, you use the na- a name or title for God to express your disgust. And he goes, ah, who hasn't done that? Okay, that's called blasphemy. You've taken the name of the God who made you, given you every good thing you have, the God whom you suppress, the truth about whom you suppress, and you've dragged his name in the mud. It's called blasphemy. It's very serious. Let me give you another one. Jesus said, If you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. You ever done that, Mr. Atheist? And he starts to blush and says, Of course. One more, Mr. Atheist. Have you ever hated someone? And then he says, Well, uh, not hate. That's a strong word. That's almost what they always say, seriously. And then they'll say, But, you know, maybe strongly dislike. By the way, you know what the definition of hate is? Strongly dislike. But anyway, I'll tell him, let's define hate. Let's define hate. <clears throat> Jesus said, if you are angry enough with your brother to say to him, you fool, you're guilty enough to go to hell. You're as guilty as a murderer. So hate isn't this horrible, fuzzy, or angry feeling in my heart to do harm to somebody. That could be hate. But hate is just insulting people and treating them wrongly. Right? If you're angry enough with someone to insult them, you've hated them in your heart. And you've already committed murder. So I ask him, sir, have you ever been angry enough to insult them in traffic, something like that? And they go, of course. When according to the Bible, you're a murderer. So then I'll say, Mr. Atheist, this isn't me judging you, this is by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterous, murder at heart. No wonder you don't believe in the existence of God, because you're guilty. You're like a thief who can't find a cop, you're guilty, you don't want to be found. But you know God, you love sin, you hate him, and you suppress the truth, but one day, Mr. Atheist, you're gonna stand before this God anyway. Heaven and earth's gonna flee from before him who sits upon the throne and you're gonna stand before him in judgment. Mr Atheist, on that day are you gonna be innocent or guilty? And you know, hopefully he'll admit he's guilty. If not, you can affirm. You're guilty, sir. You're guilty. And because God is a just judge, would you end up in heaven or God's prison hell? Hell. If anyone's logical and if the image of God is at work within him, he's going to admit he's going to hell. And they say, Mr. Atheist, I care for you. I don't want that for you. There's good news. God has made a way for you to escape hell. Can I share that with you? The good news is God sent His Son into the world. Jesus was born of a virgin, fully God, fully man. Lived a sinless, perfect life for 33 years and met the requirement of the law. Then he died on the cross, taking the punishment for sinners. We broke the law. Jesus paid the fine for His people. He satisfied justice. And then I might give him a courtroom analogy like this. let take it to a courtroom, Mr. Reyes. Imagine you're standing in front of a judge. You've committed heinous crimes. The fine is a million dollars. Can you pay that? And I go, no. And I was going to say, yeah, if you could, I'd borrow some money from you. Because right? I don't have a million dollars. So... You can't pay the fine, so you try your you try some outs, Your Honor. I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. Would that work? The judge going to let him go for that? Not if he's a good judge, right? So then he says, Your Honor, I I have my good outweighs my bad. I help old people across the street. I give money to the poor. I play bingo at the at the nursing home. I'm a good person. The judge says, That's not the way it works. You're not judged based up your good outweighing your bad. You're measured by the law. If you deviate from it, you're guilty. There's a fine to be paid. So then he says, But Your Honor. I'm sorry. doesn't work. He's about to take him out of the courtroom to prison for the rest of his life. Right before he's taken out of the courtroom, a man walks in he's never met. This is the one whom he offended. Who, the law was broken against this man. And he come in, comes in and says, Your Honor, I love this man. I've sold everything off my back. Here's a million dollars. I'll be the substitute. I'll pay the fine. That works. Justice satisfied. Fine paid by the substitute. The criminal's liberated and free to go. That's what Jesus did in the Gospel. We broke the law. Jesus paid the fine with His blood. He satisfied the justice of God. Rose again, Mr. Atheist. And now you can be forgiven if you repent and believe in Christ. If you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Okay? And they say, so, Mr. Atheist, will you give us some thought? Sure. Thank you for talking with me. Can I give you a card? Give him some information. There you go. So that's a practical way to share the Gospel. And I know that came at you Pretty fast. You don't have time to really dissect that, but you can listen to that again on sermon audio, by the way. But now, what I want to do now is I want to quickly give you a few resources, and then we're going to go into some Q and A for the final ten minutes or so. Let me give you six. I could give you a lot, but let me give you six resources to get you started in evangelism. Number one is a book called The School of Biblical Evangelism. School of Biblical Evangelism. It's by Ray Comfort and his ministry at Living Waters. Best book I've ever read on evangelism, because it's so simple and so down to earth and so practical. Ray Comfort just he, he makes it so he's just a simple guy. Anyone can do it. You just watch his videos over and over again, and you're like, man, I can do that. Very simple. Good way to get started. I think it's it's 101 chapters, but the chapters are like two pages. I mean, you can read it. You can read a chapter in five minutes. Fifteen minutes gives you plenty of time to really absorb it. It's very good. Number two. And that same line is Living Waters, which is just the ministry of Ray Comfort, and you can find his YouTube videos where he interviews people at campuses and in various places and shares the gospel with them, using that method I just told you about. Uh, number three is a book entitled Evangelism by John MacArthur and the Master Seminary. Evangelism by John MacArthur and the Master Seminary, very good book. Am I going too fast for you? Okay. Okay. Oh. I'm going to make an awkward pause here for Caitlin. That one
1: here.
0: Uh, Evangelism by John MacArthur and the Master Seminary. This outline that we've been going through, uh, the gist of that came from that book. Um, it really was influential for me. Number four, Mark Dever. I know Mark Dever is not exactly where we want him to be right now, but Mark Dever has a good book on... Uh, Entitled The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. The Gospel, Personal Evangelism. Uh, Number five, Answers in Genesis. Their ministry, very, very helpful. Number four was Mark Dever, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. Number five was Answers in Genesis. It's a ministry, they have, uh, it's the ministry of Ken Ham. If you've ever been to Kentucky, maybe you've been to the Ark. Uh, the Creation Museum. Ken Ham's big in that. Uh, he has, there's a book series called Answers. Very good. I think there's four or five of them. Excellent. I mean, they're so good on apologetics and just understanding a Christian worldview. Then uh, there's uh, videos, things like that. I highly, highly recommend that ministry. Answers in Genesis.
1: They have a program
0: on television, too. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of if resources. Have right
1: whatever provider.
0: Answers in Genesis is really helpful. And then number six is the best book I've ever read, I think, uh, on the specific issue of apologetics. It's by Jason Lyle, and it's entitled The Ultimate Proof of Creation. The Ultimate Proof of Creation. Jason Lyle is an astrophysicist, so he's not some idiot somewhere making things up. He's a a genius, and he's a Christian genius. Uh, He's a six-day creationist, young earth, uh, biblical presuppositional guy, very good book. And he really simplistically explains the presuppositional method, which I think is the best and biblical method. And we might talk a little bit about that uh, as we do some Q&A here. All right, so those are the six resources. You got those? Jason Lyle, the ultimate proof of creation. And if you need me to send you links or whatever via text or email, let me know and I can make sure I get you those. All right, any thoughts on what we've talked about so far? So hopefully you've learned that when we share the gospel, we don't tell people God loves them Ask Jesus in your heart, right? If that's all you took away from this, praise God. All right, last thing I want to do this morning is I want to do some Q&A. So there's two ways we can go about this. Number one is I can open the floor, let you guys ask your questions that you might have regarding evangelism, or maybe even tough objections that you're wondering about how you can answer them. And if there's awkward silence for about 45 seconds, then I have several questions here that we can work through together. So let's start with the first option. What are some questions you might have uh, with regard to the topic of evangelism and apologetics? Okay. You have one? Yeah. Okay. So, when you're, like, talking about good verses, going to the Testaments and you get to hate, and you ask them if they hate anymore, what
1: if they're, like, well, My hate is justified. I have a reason for hating
0: so and so. That's a good question. Um, I would tell them that God has every reason to hate you. God has every reason to end your life right now and throw you into the pit of hell. And yet God is merciful to you. And so you should show that mercy to those who offended you. Now that does not... Again, we've talked about it before. There is righteous anger, right? I mean, being angry at somebody for doing something evil and in your heart of hearts... If your attitude is, Lord, I'm angry at this person, I pray you save this person and change their heart. But if not, that you bring them to justice and judgment. But I'm, angry. you know, there's a righteous anger. Does that make sense? Uh, and so I would, I would describe that. I would explain that if they asked that question. Make sense? Okay. No follow-up question.
1: The example,
0: yeah, yeah. Boy, this is not the wussy American Jesus going in with a cord of whips and whipping everybody and flipping the tables over, is it? So Jesus expressed righteous anger and indignation. Any other? What? What are some? Said,
1: we need life, break
0: your teeth, Lord. Ah, one of my favorite imprecatory songs: "Break their teeth, oh Lord!" Not ordinarily, I wouldn't pray that. Good question. Some thoughts, questions, or even tough obstacles or objections to the Christian faith you would like to hear answered and thought about. 15 more seconds. All right, let me give you some. And if you think of something as we're doing this, just feel free to shut me up and, and raise your hand. Okay. Here's another
1: thought as
0: far exactly. as... Exactly. Good, good job, illustration. Carol. Good job, Carol. <laughs> All right, go ahead.
1: As far as uh, justified anger, but
0: it's
1: okay so you didn't break that law, you broke another
0: one. Okay, yeah, right.
1: Others. You know, just because right. you didn't break that one time doesn't mean that you haven't
0: broken right Right. That's a good point because, you know, you're going to run into people occasionally who think they just... It's so weird. They'll say, yeah, I know I'm a sinner, but then you go through the Ten Commandments it's like they've never broken any of them. I'm like, what? And all it takes is just one. If you broke one line,
1: you've broken
0: them all. Right, that's a good point. So if hypothetically you're dealing with someone, you know they're lying because every one of us has broken every one of the commandments. Every one of them. Multiple right? times. Multiple times. Tenth commandment, you shall not covet. Every one of us has done that to some degree. Ninth commandment, do not bear false witness or lie. All of us have done that. God, Romans 3, let God be true, though every man found a liar. Uh, eighth commandment, shall not uh, steal. Uh, everyone's done that at some point in their life. Seventh: That would include downloading music off the internet that isn't yours and so forth. Seventh commandment, shall not commit adultery. Everyone has looked with sexual lust in their hearts. Sixth commandment, shall not murder. Every one of us have been angry enough with someone to insult him unrighteously. Fifth commandment: Honor your mother, mother and father. I think I'm the only one that did that perfectly. Blimey. Of course not. <laughs> Fourth commandment: Observe the Sabbath. None of us have worshipped God and given Him the worship that is due His name. Third commandment: Shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We've all done that. And then the first two commandments: None of us have loved God perfectly above all things in all of our lives. Okay, so all of us have broken all the commandments. But if you run into someone who says, you know, they haven't done any of this, and then they admit they did one thing wrong, usually lying is the one they admit they've done wrong. Then you can do what Sean said. The Bible says if you keep the whole law and stumble at one point, you're guilty of it all. It's a body of law. You've broken it, and that's all it takes. It's one violation, and you're condemned. So that's enough.
1: And to throw in the, I think it needs to be pointed out too, and there's a psalm, in one of the psalms, it talks about, yes, we've sinned against, like if I lied to you, yes, I sinned against you, but ultimately, mm-hmm. what should bother me more is that I sinned against the Holy Lord.
0: And no. Right? Against you and you only have I sinned. Right? Psalm 51. Our sins are ultimately... There, there is a horizontal aspect. We do offend and, and, and wrong our neighbor every time we sin, really. Most, most of the time. But always, it has a vertical aspect. It's a breaking of the law of God. And it's an infinite offense to an infinitely holy God meriting an infinite punishment. Good point. Alright. Uh, and then, it, by the way, you're going to run into some people when you ask them how many lies they've told, they'll tell you they've told four lies. And you know that's the fifth right there, right? Because (laughs) it's certainly told more than four All Alright, so, any other questions, objections, thoughts?
1: When people say that they don't believe in God, um, I don't know if you've heard of Saitan Bruggenkate, but he has a video called How to Answer the Fool, which we have back there. Yeah, we have several of them. And he's... An apologist, but he's a pre apologist and he runs on what Roman says, that everybody knows in their heart that there is a God, and they just choose to to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that's exactly what that says. And when people tell me that they don't believe in God, okay, first of all, you just lied to me, because you broke the commandment, six. because Roman says that you know that there's a God, and that you're choosing. And if somebody says they don't believe in God, the quickest, or they don't believe in...
0: Oh, objective morality. I think I know where you're going. My
1: brain just... I forget what the analogy is, but it's is it wa- steal their wallet. Yes.
0: Someone says they don't believe in absolute morality or objective morality and the way to prove it is to take their wallet. Absolute truth. Absolute truth, yeah. Take their wallet, and then when they're crying out for justice, you're like, "Oh, why, why should the cops do anything? Well, there's no absolute morality. By there? what standard are
1: you saying that that's wrong? Exactly. You don't in...
0: exactly. Let's get into that question. I've got it here. How do you know God exists? The well, way an atheist asks you that... How do you know that God exists? Let me give you some, some things you can say. Uh, first of all, you have to presuppose what the Bible says. We are, need to be presuppositionalists. What that means, by the way, as a presuppositionalist, it means that we understand that everyone has presupposition. Okay? There is no neutrality, no neutral ground. Everyone's either for Christ or what? Against. Against Him. There is no middle ground. There is no true seeker except the one that God is regenerating through the Gospel. So people... Are not naturally seeking God, Romans three. None seek for God. So you have to presuppose Romans one that they already know God, and that should affect the way we do apologetics, shouldn't it? Uh, Psalm nineteen: The heavens declare the glory of God; their words have gone out to the end of the earth. Right? Every man knows. So, but what you can do is you can briefly point them to creation and say, "Sir, you already know God exists because creation is the evidence of the Creator. He declares His glory. You're without excuse." You could go there. Uh, Then you could point out providence. And not only that, sir, but God has given you fruitful seasons from heaven. I mean, He gives rain on the crops. He's upholding the universe by the word of His power. Then you can go to conscience. You can call this the argument from morality. You can say something like, sir, let me ask you this. Is it wrong to brutally rape and murder 10-year-old children? What do you think the atheist ordinarily is going to say? Yes. Yes. And then you say this. Mr. Atheist... Is that just your opinion, or is it absolutely, objectively, morally wrong for everybody? What is the atheist probably going to say? He's probably going to say it's wrong. It's wrong. And then you say, Mr. Atheist, according to what standard? Says who? And then there are a few ways that the atheist might answer. The atheist might say, well, morality is a societal construct. Government and, and society determines morality. He doesn't really believe that. Ask him, so what happened under you know, in Nazi Germany under Hitler. Was that fine? No, I mean, it was legal. Jew, he was killing the Jews. They weren't, they weren't people. And he's going to admit that was wrong, almost certainly, because he's made in the image of God and the law of God is in his heart. He'll admit that's wrong. And then you can say something like this, Mr. Atheist, you live your life presupposing God because morality demands God's existence. It demands an absolute lawgiver and judge. You know He exists, and that's why you do know in your heart of hearts it's absolutely wrong to rape and kill ten-year-old. Right? So you can use the image of God against Him. He already knows God. You got something to say, John? Oh, I like you were getting ready to come out with a really good objection. <laughs> I'll work on it. Okay, I'll work on it. I'll work on it. All right, so, that's, uh, so basically it's called the transcendental argument. Okay? The transcendental argument. If you use it, most atheists are going to be thrown off because they've never heard it. They're used to people going through the, what we call the classical arguments. And I think the classical arguments are biblical. I think they're good. I think they're conclusive. The problem is the atheist is going to interpret them in light of the evidence. It's not going to convert them. So the presuppositional or transcendental argument states this. God exists because of the impossibility of the contrary. God exists because of the impossibility of the contrary. Or another way to put it is that we know the Bible is the Word of God because without the Bible we couldn't know or prove anything at all. Let me show you what I mean by that. God is the necessary precondition for intelligibility. If you don't have God, you can not have laws of logic. So the atheist might say something like, science disproves God. And you tell the atheist, sir, you can't even do science without God. By engaging and utilizing the scientific methodology, you're presupposing God. Because to do science... To think intelligibly, you have to have laws of logic. Laws of logic are immaterial, right? Has anybody ever stubbed their toe in a five-pound bag of logic? No, the laws of logic are immaterial. The laws of logic are universal. They're true everywhere. It doesn't matter if you're in America. It doesn't matter if you're in Uganda. It's not like you're going to go to Africa, and they're going to say, hey, laws of logic do going apply here. It's okay to contradict yourself. Law of contra- non-contradiction doesn't matter. No, because we use the laws of logic everywhere. And the laws of logic are unchangeable, right? The same laws we utilize today are the ones utilized 100 years ago and 500 years from now. So how can the atheist, in his time, chance, accidental, materialistic universe, account for universal, unchanging, uh, immaterial laws of logic? He can't. He's reduced to saying something like this. The laws of logic are really just uh, kind of the chemicals fizzing in our brain. Well, the chemicals in your brain are different from the chemicals in my brain. So I can just make my own laws of logic? I'll make my own laws of logic and declare myself the winner of the debate. How about that? Why not? Or maybe he'll say the laws of logic are uh, just uh, conventional. We decide upon them. But if that was the case, we might have different laws of logic here and from here, right? But that's not the way it works. They're universal. But as Christians, we can account for laws of logic. God's immaterial. God's universal. God's unchangeable. The laws of logic are an extension of the very mind of God in the way He expects us to think, Right? There's other ones. You can go to the reliability of your senses. If the atheist has no justification to trust in his reasoning and his senses, he can't know anything. All he's doing is is he's stating things he thinks, but he could be wrong because everything in this whole world could be wrong. So I asked the atheist this. How do you know your senses are valid? And now you can't use your senses to determine they're valid. That's what what they accuse us of, right? What is that? Circular reasoning. Circular reasoning. You sense that your senses are valid. But if your senses are the ones in question and they're, they're not valid, then what you're sensing isn't valid. For all you know, since you're just an animal evolving and your thought processes are nothing but chemicals fizzing in your brain, you're a flower somewhere in the desert and the chemicals are giving you the illusion that you're a human being. How do you know that's not the case? You, now, don't use your senses. You can't use your senses to prove this, right? So the atheist and the Christian both have to presuppose the reliability of your senses. The atheist has no foundation to trust his senses. He's an animal of all The Christian has reason to trust his senses. We're made in the image of God. God is rational. He made us to think the thoughts of God after Him. We can think rational. We have a justification for reasoning they don't. So the atheist can't make truth claims, can't do science without presupposing God. So here's what the atheist does. The atheist is like a person arguing against the existence of error. He says error doesn't exist. Let me tell you, I've got these five arguments. And the whole time he's making and espousing his really good arguments, his words are transmitting through the air. He's sucking air in his lungs to make his argument, and so his argument is a self-refuting one. Because if air didn't exist, he couldn't even make his argument at all. So it is with the atheist. If God didn't exist, he couldn't make a claim that the Bible is evil. Well, there's no God. There's no evil. He couldn't make a claim that it's wrong, the Bible contradicts itself. Who cares? Well, why is it wrong to contradict yourself in an atheistic worldview? You don't have laws of logic. So the atheist has to presuppose God to argue against God. He's like a child sitting in the lap of his father, smacking his daddy. The only reason he can do it is because the lap of the father supports the child to do it. The only reason the atheist can argue against God is because he presupposes God. And therefore his arguments are all self-refuting and internally inconsistent. Does that make sense? It's very complex. The moral argument is probably the easiest one to use. Okay? Is it wrong to kill people? Yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. That's the easiest one. The transcendental argument. Very transcendent, isn't it? It's called the transcendental argument. All right, let's close in prayer and you guys get a shorter break this morning. Sorry, Kayla. Father, thank you for this time and your word studying the topic of evangelism. Help us to be faithful, to be witnesses for Christ, and bless our worship service this morning for your glory. Amen. You're early.